1: Today, we break the most basic of dinner party rules and get away with it as we serve up a hearty conversation on religion and politics. We also take a look at a landmark speech on Indigenous recognition and ask the question, is there madness in Trump's method? Is he a buffoon or an evil genius? That's all on today's Democracy Sausage. Thanks for joining me here on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, which comes to you weekly from the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Parliament's back next week, but there's always something going on in national affairs regardless. And to toss around some of the big issues, I'm happy to introduce our guests this week. Katrine Beauregard is a political scientist at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations from Whence I Hail as well. Welcome back, Katrine.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. Jade Gailberger is a political correspondent at The Advertiser and is based here in the national capital. Glad to have you along, Jade.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And David Gazard is a consultant or lobbyist, I'm not sure how you you would categorise it, and has been in Canberra for decades in and around politics. He's a former staffer, was a, uh, a press advisor, I think, to Peter Costello, then treasurer. He's been a Liberal Party candidate. He's very well connected here in Canberra with uh, people on all sides, but I understand also has the ear of the Prime Minister, or at least that's what some of the uh, the press coverage says. Glad to have you along, David.
3: Good to be here, Mark. Thanks.
1: Now, let's kick off today's discussion um, looking at uh, you know what was really the big issue of, of last week, which was the speech by the... Uh, Um, Indigenous Affairs or the Minister for Indigenous Australians, I think is the correct title for Ken Wyatt's uh, historic new position. And he gave a, a landmark speech at the National Press Club I think David you were there, and Jade you were there as well. I was there, uh, where he talked about uh, this um you know really driving forward the whole issue of indigenous uh, recognition in the constitution and uh you know there's a, a fair bit of reportage since then about uh, what that all means. I guess that's the question: what does it all mean because he seemed to be uh opening a process david that was um that was very non-prescriptive, I mean quite deliberately so. He was looking not to create opposition straight away in this process but rather invite all parties to, uh, you know, start talking about it. When I say parties, I don't mean political parties but all interested people to start talking about this and looking at the way it would come about. Um, and, of course, we've had the statement from the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, uh, which was fairly quickly dismissed as a, you know, recipe for a third chamber. Um That is the idea of a voice being enshrined in the Constitution. He was uh, not particularly precise on that, although he did flag that it might not be in the Constitution. But since then, that's been clarified. So, I mean, where are we with it uh, as far as you see it?
3: I I think it's really interesting. I'm I'm gratified that the government's taken it on to start with because I think they want to move this process forward. There there was funding given to actually run the referendum in Mm. the last budget that that Morrison and Frydenberg brought down um, before the election. So there there has been funding made available for it for some time, but it's moved on from the perspective that Ken Wyatt has been made the first Indigenous minister for Indigenous Australians, and this is one of the first cabs off the rank. I I think the process is reflective of where we find ourselves now as a society, or at least an Australian society, and that is – an acknowledgement to the fact that if this tips into the kind of entrenched silos that have 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 formed in the media or across public policy we're not going to get anywhere yeah and so i th- i think kens approach is to say look let's let's start a conversation about this to see where we have points of mutual commonality and let's see where it goes and any the the interesting thing he said is that If we can't get that agreement, we're not going to put the question. So in other words, if if it just becomes this exercise with everyone dingoing each other, then it's not going to go forward. So you make the call. If you want to turn this into a process of rancor, then we're not going to get anywhere. And There's but, other things but, that we want to do.
1: That, that's right. But isn't that sort of what happened almost straight away? I mean, there was a number of people who came out uh, uh, within the, the Liberal Party straight away. Ab-
3: absolutely. Not just in the Liberal Party, but within you know various parts of Labor and from the Indigenous people themselves saying, well, it must have this or it must mm. have that if we're not reflected. I, I think you're going to have that. But hopefully, as Ken goes forward, you, you'll start to winnow out some of the more extreme views or the more, how should we say, entrenched views that may not have broad support Mm. and will accrete to a point where you can actually get some agreement and maybe there'll be a sensible question going forward that not everyone can agree on. And I I think this is the important point, right? Everyone has to learn again Mm. that concessions have to be made. Yeah, it's a very good point. What did you make of it, Jade?
0: I thought it was a really interesting speech, the way he really emphasised the need for co-design. He was really open. He made that really um, a key point that he wasn't just going to put something forward that he thought he wasn't going to put something forward that only Indigenous Australians supported. He really made sure that this is going to be a really like open consultation process with everyone, whether it's the states and territories, whether it's um, Indigenous Australians. He also um, opened the invitation to um, Linda Burney, the Labor spokesperson um, for Indigenous Australians on the issue and really wants it to be a collaborative. I think it was sad to see so early on, especially around the issue of a voice um, to the parliament, that there was quite like some opposition towards it, you know, it couldn't be a third chamber, it shouldn't be this, it shouldn't be that. But I think the beauty of where we're at now is that it could actually be anything, like with the right consultation, finding out what people actually want, what the possibilities could be, it could be anything. And I think there is a risk that so early on, we're already ruling out it can't be this, it can't be that, because we've still got such a long way to go as a society, um, as these conversations develop over the next term, if it does reach that point that we can get to a question that everybody supports, that could succeed for a referendum.
1: It it did have a sense, though. I mean, you're right when you say that... Um, it you know, that we shouldn't be ruling things in or out. but or, And, you know, obviously some people have tried to. I mean, Craig Kelly and others have, have you know, sort of bought into it quite quickly, um, which I think, you know, was was a little sad really to see. But the prime minister himself, of course, has since come out and clarified that as far as he's concerned – and when the prime minister says this, the, you know, it's the prime minister, we should remember. So as, as he's concerned, it's not going to be canvassing or, or considering the prospect of a voice mechanism in the constitution. So we're talking about there'll be indigenous recognition in the constitution, but not the mechanism for advising parliament. Um, what, what do you think, Katrine? I mean, it's it, it, yeah. th- that felt like it was uh, being curtailed. Yeah. from. Like, It felt like there was a gap between the sort of rhetorical invitation mm-hmm. that Ken Wyatt seemed to be making to the nation and then that crimping of options fairly quickly after that. Yeah,
2: it's a bit, from my point of view, it's a bit of a debate between a symbol and an actual substantive policy proposal, right? Uh, symbols are important. Uh, and thought that we're going to have recognition in the constitution. It's a powerful symbol of inclusion for the indigenous population. But at the same time, it's not enough for a lot of indigenous population. They weren't actually to have some form of voice or some form of say in the way that the political process. And yeah, it was. And, but so you want to have, but more, I think for a lot of indigenous population, just the symbol is just not enough. You need to actually do something about it. And, but, the, the counter to that is that actually changing things is very difficult, right? Because of what we just said, within twenty four hours, is people starting saying, "No, we cannot do this. We cannot do that. We mm. can." And then, so the actual policy change will be a lot more difficult because you can always find someone who's opposing to it. And the process of changing the constitution is really hard, and you need to make sure that you have everyone agreeing with it, and no one's going to agree with. it. And the danger is that it's going to dilute any types of. Uh, Policy proposal and making it very simple and just sticking with the symbol. Like, yes, we can all agree that we need this, but we cannot agree what it means in practice. And if we cannot agree, then we'll just focus on the symbol and having them and not having any change into the way we're doing politics as usual, which might not be exactly productive, counterproductive to what we're actually aiming
3: for with this measure. Yeah. Ken Ken sort of took this on a little bit in the speech last Wednesday where he noted, and I, I had no awareness of this, but he said, there were twenty five indigenous candidates that stood at the last election, and there were three elected to the parliament. Um, and so his, his way of reconciling that sort of voice question mm-hmm. was to say, well, you can have a voice. you do have a voice. Mm-hmm. We've got three members mm-hmm. of the parliament out of one hundred and fifty one seats in the lower house that ha- have found their voice, and it, it wouldn't it be great to have more? Mm. That was sort of his point of saying, you know, forget the third chamber. Let, let's use the chamber that's already in existence where a number of Indigenous have stood and a number of Indigenous people have been successful. That that was his sort of point to that. Yeah,
1: I think, I think that's oh, right. Sorry. There was a, no, no, you go on.
2: I was just going to say, as I studied quotas and representation, and I would say it's all fair and good, but there's no guarantee that that's going to stay this way, right? The, the Indigenous representation is at the mercy of political parties' willingness to select these candidates and... I mean, I've studied more women in politics, but what we see is that sometimes political parties go back and that could something be happened. And if I was, it's great that it's working and it's great as it does, but there's actually no guarantee that's going to stay this way.
1: Yeah. I think the interesting thing also is that, I mean, you say it's not, uh, David, you say it's not uh, so much about, you know, a third chamber or let's forget the third chamber, um, perhaps paraphrasing what uh, what Ken Wyatt said, but... This whole notion of the third chamber is a contested idea, anyway. Um, Anne Toomey wrote an excellent piece, I thought, in the Australian on the weekend, where she pretty much systematically dismantled the whole claim that it would have constituted a third chamber in any sense, uh, and likened it to various other statutory or or bodies that sit outside the parliament, uh, you know, but which advise the parliament and which don't constitute third chambers. so you know this idea really you know it's a kind of like a political reaction to what was the Uluru statement from the heart. Why why is it why is it useful to so early on in the piece um, to kind of not put, have that option there? Because if the Australian people wanted to have within the Constitution a um, recognised a mechanism for the first peoples to advise the parliament then the Australian people should have the right to decide that that's what the referendums are for why why sort of circumscribe that issue so so early on and this is actually um a question from Shira- Shireen Lam- Lamande uh, she says, and we do appreciate people obviously giving us feedback. You can get to us on uh, Apps Policy Forum at Twitter, Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum dot net. Now, as I say, Shireen Lamande uh, asks about Indigenous policy. She says, um, "What on earth is going on?" I think it's a you know, it's a legitimate question that some voters will have about what appeared to be the mismatch between the idea of opening this up for a genuinely kind of without prejudice discussion and then kind of narrowing it so quickly.
3: I divide it into two parts. The first being sort of the area we've already traversed in some ways. Um, what's achievable in a pragmatic sense? Where, where can you get over the next three years? Mm. Acknowledging the sort of fractious history that that we've had on some of these issues, unfortunately, and, um, I look back over the, the, the 25, 30 years I've been around Canberra, and during that time we've had Marbo, we've had WIC, we've had the intervention, uh, we've had, on on a broader sense, a referendum around the Republic, um, it, and all these te- things tend to sort of fracture a bit around party lines. So yeah. that that's where you can get to in the, the next three years is not the be-all and end-all, and... and To your point, I I think that, Katrine, right? Um, Yeah, it's there's a there's a a symbolic aspect of this that can't be overlooked, and you don't want to shut down people and having a legitimate debate about it. But where we where we can get to and in the increments that we can achieve that is is important and has to be acknowledged. The second would be, I think, more of a broader philosophical view that you would have in a in a parliamentary democracy where you. you you can have a a rival power in a third chamber. It it would be like the same debate, I think that came up around a popularly elected president where you could potentially have a figure who'd been, who'd been elected through whatever mechanisms, who's then a rival to the leader, which would cause a lot of instability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think from a parliamentary point of view, there is some reluctance to go down that path because they can see the problems that that might, that might get to now. You know, let, let's see where it goes. And if if you're right, Mark, and there is a groundswell of support for that, that, you know, brings that into sharp relief with some of the other areas mm. people want to go, I think that would be, you know, quite an interesting landing point then for... The leadership of both parties to countenance. But I, I can't see either side really going that hard for that at the end of the day.
1: It's a really interesting point you make too about the comparison with the 1999 referendum on, um, on the Republic, which of course failed and which really sort of scarred, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, the ground or really really uh, is seared into the memories of people about what can happen when you have referendums that fail because the republic has been, you know, pretty much mm-hmm. nowhere now for for the two decades since as far as having any real momentum behind it. And I think Ken White was quite wise to be sort of uh, obliquely referencing that and saying, you know, we need to make sure that whatever we come up with, this goes to your point, Jade, about, um, you know, it being achievable Um we won't put it if it's if it's not going to, to get up. I mean, that's obviously a, a big concern, isn't it?
0: I think it's a massive concern. And the other point with having a like a referendum is the fact that you will need all Australians to participate. And I think that also goes to a point where there really needs to be like good communication and open communication with Australians. A lot of people right now wouldn't know what any of this means. Um, a lot of people would be wondering, why do I care? What does it affect me? And I think this is going to be a really long process. If it does happen in this term, there really needs to start communicating with Australians now we need to tell them what it is, what has been happening, what the rights could mean. Uh, so I think this will be a really interesting conversation as it develops, as more um, ideas start to come to the table, as Ken Wyatt develops a model in consultation with Indigenous Australians as to how they actually proceed on this before we even get to a question. Bringing Australians along on this journey will be really important as to how mm. achievable or successful this is going to be.
3: Jade's right on that. I mean, I saw a piece in one of the papers saying there is almost no recognition about what the Uluru Statement even means Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So you've got a long way to go before you can start to tease out some of the more difficult questions and implications of various aspects of the vote.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because yeah, well, you and I are certainly old enough, uh, David. Uh, we're probably the only ones in this room old enough to remember the 1999
3: referendum in any uh, – Unfortunately, uh, that's probably probably true. <laughs> Although we – I must say we've kept our youth well. Oh, we you? yeah. We're,
1: we're, we're good on radio anyway, uh, <laughs> on, on audio, on podcast. Um, but it, it, it occurs to me just as we're thinking about this that, um, you know, there there, there are some – there are more parallels than just uh, the fact of it being a kind of, a you know, a significant – social movement referendum type momentum that we're talking about here, and that is the possibility of the voice in the constitution becoming like that debate between, as you were referencing before, that debate between a directly elected president or the minimalist model. Uh, and we know where that ended up in terms of the, the, the referendum on the republic. It, it ended up being the thing that split the vote in favour of a referendum, and and so nothing happened. Is that, is that a danger, do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I think it is. And and I, I was thinking over the weekend about this, and I think there's another parallel that comes into it, and it was the Greens dingoing Kevin Rudd's climate policy mm. because they felt they couldn't have it all. Therefore, they said, no, we're not voting for that, voted it out of the parliament, and, you know, many on Labor's side still say, well, we're further back than that than ever before, because you held out for what was going to be your gold-plated model, and you weren't prepared to compromise one little bit. And I, th- I think that's going to be a-, a guiding principle to this. If people hold out for absolutely everything, nothing will be achieved. And the government's already said, if if we can't agree, we're not going forward. So there, there has to be a willingness to engage on a lot of these principles or the thing will collapse.
1: All right. Well, we'll take a quick break there. And when we come back, I think we might switch our attention to another issue that was running quite strongly and, and will, will be running for a while now, I think. And that is this issue of religious freedom or, or religious uh, um, discrimination, anti-discrimination that the coalition is looking at.
3: Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio?
0: Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for.
3: I'm Martin Pearce.
0: And I'm Sarah Bice.
3: And we're running a very special Podcasting for Professionals short course here at the a Crawford School.
0: We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience.
3: We'll answer all the questions you might have, like...
0: What should I call my podcast? What
3: formats work?
0: What equipment do I need? How
3: do I do interviews?
0: How do I write a script? How
3: the hell do I use this audio editing software?
0: How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience?
3: And how do I know if I've been successful?
0: So many questions, Martin. And
3: so many answers, Sarah.
0: Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth.
3: And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's
0: Podcasting for Professionals short course.
3: Find out more at bit.ly forward slash (laughs) policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. Thanks
1: for joining us here on Democracy Sausage. Let's look at uh, this issue of uh, religious freedom, um, so called issue. And I'm still not entirely convinced where this even <laughs> came from. Um, there's a lot of momentum, it seems, behind it, certainly on the coalition side. Uh, we have a, a question from uh, Joanne Chen, um, who says she thought it was an interesting week in the context of religious religious freedom. Scott Morrison was uh, seen at the Hillsong conference. It's a conference he's been to before, but of course he is a, a well known, um, uh, you know, Pentecostal Christian, and uh, and his religion is uh, has been you know remarked upon quite a lot. Um, Joanne's asking, you know, how this is going to play out in Australian politics. You know, is it is it a new thing, do you think, Kuchin?
2: Uh, I think it's new. And uh, from what I understand from teaching Australian politics, I think we kind of have put Religion a bit—it's not something we talk about—and but more and more now, uh, we used to not know about which religion or politician were or which church mm-hmm. they used to go to, and now we do know what church they used to go to, and now it's becoming a a tool in a way of attracting voting because I think what Scott Morrison is doing is by being publicly uh, visible into the the Hillsong conference is basically appealing to his voters, right? And then that's—you don't do anything without. A political motive. I'm very cynical, sorry. But, but isn't he <laughs> – yeah. yeah,
1: that but is cynical in a way because isn't he just being honest? I mean, this yeah, is he who is. he is.
2: Yeah, he is. But I think there must be a, – a, I mean, I'm not uh, doubting his is fate at all. But I'm saying that there's – probably see it from a political perspective that there's some uh, – political gain to have from this, right? And we, as reaffirming some sort of Christian values that is associated with this political program and as such, and I think that's kind of a bit uh, Different. My, uh, I was a bit uncomfortable about it when I saw it on the TV. I'm like, okay, is he gonna go to a mosque after that and talk to people? Is he gonna go to? I mean, I think the danger is now nah, with this is that it's just becoming a Christian prime minister or an appealing strictly mm. to Christian and in uh, avoiding other parts of the society who might not.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, as uh, border protection minister or home affairs minister, whatever it was called before them, minister for immigration and border protection, he had uh, quite a strong relationship with a number of um, uh, prominent members of the Islamic community, mm-hmm. um, and I think he still has those friendships. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's he's not without uh, his uh, his links to other mm-hmm. other faiths as well. But what about you, Jade? Do you think there was a sort of a I mean, a sense that Australian politics? Is becoming a bit more American. It's starting to look a bit more American in that sense where faith has always been a, a, um, you know, more prominent kind of, um, element in the politics.
0: I think it's an interesting point um, you make about drawing lines um, to American politics. Um, One thing that I definitely found when I moved to Canberra and started reporting on federal politics was that a lot of um, the people chosen to represent, Australians, our MPs, um, and even our senators representing states, um, are quite open or do they go to church? Yeah, they they're do quite churchy. Like this, There's been, right? there been a, in the surveys that comparison to, I'd say, like, you know, more just middle Australians, a lot of people now are atheists. So there is kind of, I find, a really interesting dynamic there between the people who are representing us are often people of faith and the people, like, majority are starting. We've seen even in, like, the census data, more people are saying no religion. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a really interesting um, kind of change happening there. Um, but I think also just going back to, like, religious freedoms and has this kind of, like, come out of nowhere, we did actually see during the election campaign questions about what are you going to do to protect religious freedoms come up um, when – There were questions directed in debates towards um, Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten. And that was really interesting because it's really starting to push forward that movement um, and also around questions of a discrimination act um, as far as protecting people's religious beliefs, what people can say online. I thought it was interesting what um, Scott Morrison...
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: And said at the Hillsong Conference um, talking about where law and culture um, and how they're two different things, how we, if we can be open, um, if culture can be more accepting, then maybe like the law aspect doesn't have to come into play as much. But it has actually been found in a joint committee report um, that was actually tabled in April that there aren't many practical um, like points in the law that can protect people and their beliefs and like their religious faith in that aspect. So there definitely is a need for more practical protections. A few Liberal MPs who I've spoken to have said, yes, there is a need for more. Um, and what that turns out to be with the Attorney General Christian Porter's workshops and what he's trying to develop right now will be interesting.
1: Yeah, what do you think, David? And where, where, where are they going to land on this? Because there's some real tensions between free speech on the one hand and freedom of religion on the other, or, or not so much freedom of religion but anti-discrimination on the other because, you know, sometimes free speech might be the freedom to criticise a religion.
3: Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, to, to some of the points made earlier, I've known um, Scott for a long time and his faith central to who he is. Before he entered Parliament, it, it still is now. He, he spoke about it in his maiden speech. I've actually attended the Hillsong conference with him prior to him coming into parliament. So it's, this is who he is. And I think he's quite authentic around that. I think we're, Western society is, is actually facing a, a whole range of, you know, potential threats to freedom across a whole range of areas. Um, you know, we've, we've, Western democracies have always been really set up on, four fundamental tenets one is freedom of speech one's freedom of religion one's freedom of expression one's freedom of association and and all of those are being tested um, the most recent to the freedom of religion thing is press freedom you know where mm-hmm. suddenly we've got the press is reporting and there's a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, an outbreak in the UK overnight about another leak of a a sensitive cable between the ambassador to the US and, and back to the home office so these are i think freedoms that are being tested and tried everywhere and and we're having to come to grips with how far we we say you know in in the case of a freedom of speech what is everyone's right to say and what becomes hate speech i think those are being tested here on campuses it's quite a, an open debate right and and part of this is freedom of religion and the 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 election campaign was interesting from the point of view that running right through the middle of it was this Israel Fallu thing, but yeah. also you know in some of these Western Sydney areas where you've had uh, high levels of immigration, you've got people of different faith who also feel like their faith and their ability to speak out is is being compromised. So you had people like Chris Bowen in the wake of the election giving his own sort of postmortem saying. I think we've missed this, right? We're, we are, we've sort of blindly going down this path where we're deciding what people can and can't say, and what that how that reflects in their in their their own uh, practices of faith, and we've missed the boat here a bit. I think we need to think about it. So. Where the draft legislation lands, I, I, I don't know. There's there's another there's a law reform thing that's going on in parallel to that. So,
1: which I think is not going to report until April. Yeah, so. I
3: think I think that might be right. So, you know, I, I think the the whole point, really, to be honest, was to get it beyond the le- the election. So. You know, when this all started to boil up, so we'd have a debate without the, the heady politics of mm-hmm. going into an election campaigns. So that's probably a better thing. You can have a, a decent debate. I think the election has conditioned it somewhat because of people like Chris Bowen have realized, hang on, I've got my constituents to look after here too, right? So um, when we debate it, how it goes forward, what the precepts are, I, I've got no idea, I've got to say, but it's, it has been really interesting to watch it unfold.
1: Yeah, it was interesting that Bowen's comments because, as you say, I mean, those, some of those uh, areas of Western Sydney where there have been a, a fair amount of um, um, Muslim immigration particularly, uh, it, there, you know, there's, a, there's a fairly high degree of social conservatism associated mm. with those faiths just like there is with many faiths. Uh, indeed, I think it's interesting that if you look at the same-sex marriage vote, the uh, I think I'm right in saying, the three strongest no-vote uh, electorates in New South Wales
3: – correct were in Western well, Sydney.
1: Yeah, they yeah. were Blacksland, Watson and McMahon, which mm. is basically Jason Clare, Tony Burke and Chris Bowen. Mm. I mean, they were Labor seats, you know, whereas seats like Wentworth and Warringah had 75%, 74%, 75% yes votes. Uh, you know, strong Liberal seats, or at least Warringah was. And
3: yeah, there's definitely something going on. You saw at least in two debates, I think, was the sky debate in the middle of the campaign? First question: A woman gets up and says, "Look, I feel like I'm under assault for."
1: But but what is this? Is this is the point that worries me a little bit here? No one really seems to be able to point to much in the way of religious persecution. I mean, people would point to the Israel <laughs> Falalel case, but that is a contract dispute. Let's put that to one side, right? That is a question of you know whether he should or should not have. Um, made comments that, the, that his employer, he had contracted with the employer not to make. we'll, we'll see what happens with that because we don't have access to the contract, but that seems to be the issue. But um, are we talking about here people of faith saying, you know, to Jade's point about the, you know, relatively high number of atheists, are we really talking about the number of people who are of faith who feel like their religion is being criticised? Because that's not religious persecution. That is just what happens in, in a democracy. What, what, where's How's the actual f- persecution going on here?
2: I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I, I suppose the flip side <laughs> would
3: be for, you know, and, and this is I think the asymmetrical part of the debate in Western societies. If a Christian were to come out and criticize another faith, you you would have this immediate mm. lighting of hair on fire with everyone saying you're a bigot, you're a racist, you, you should be condemned, right? Yeah. So there, there's an asymmetri- asymmetrical pattern that's developed mm. And so people have felt
1: because Christian, he, Christianity is the dominant faith, and
3: yeah, and that's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I, and I think people maybe you know self censor; they, they they may tend to be reluctant to speak out because they don't want their well, views suddenly is, on a Twitter. A lot
2: of anti-Muslim discourse in Western society that is very legitimate, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I think I think that the issues that I think, or back to your earlier mm. point, I think we need to start talking about these freedom in pairs with other kind of freedom right because their freedom of religion is not isolated by itself we have to talk about minority rights right or if we allow freedom of religion or protect it what does it mean for a gay and lesbian couple who wants to adopt children or, and where do those, free, where right, do those freedoms I, right? are butt right. with
1: something else yeah. what, where, yeah. where, do, they, where yeah. do they expire for example yeah. I, mean, I mean you know whether yeah. it be female I mean, genital mutilation maybe, or maybe this comment be.
2: will be very Canadian of me but it's like you know uh some of the talking about Canada is like my rights or my freedom cannot impede on your rights and your freedom, right? And that you have to think about it as a whole, not just isolated into yeah. one aspect.
1: Yeah, not just sort of fundamental. Yeah. You, you
3: come back to that, you know, statement in the Senate that was probably poorly worded, worded by George Brandis, where you know you. If you're going to be a free society, you have to have the right to accept the fact that people are going to say things that are unpalatable. And he said we've got to – you know, what was his expression? We've got to – Everybody
1: has a right to be a bigot.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you've got a right to be a bigot, right? And there's yeah. that sort of sense
1: – technically it was, of course, true. Correct. Yeah.
3: But I, I, maybe the wording was a little clumsy. And it sort of <laughs> it gave – It depends a, who says it sometimes as well. Yeah. the the I, I think the PM is sort of onto this where – you know, go back to Hillsong, right? He, he sort of embraced it a different way and said – can we, rather, can we just sort of focus on what actually unites us a bit more than what divides us and just accept that we're going to be a bit different on some sub- subjects? And I won't try to shut you down. You've got the right to say it. But it's the, there's a lot more shutting down. I think this is part of the great corrosion of social media in some ways and um, Twitter in particular where people don't feel they, they have the right. They probably have the right. They don't feel they've got the right. This is
1: my point, in a way that if that's what he's saying, I'm, I'm, you know, fully with him. I, I think that uh, the idea that we should focus, you know, strongly where we can on the things that unite us, but also have a robust sort of intellectual culture of critique of different ideas. Um, and we should allow that to happen. And if it is, it has been happening. If if things get out of balance to the point where there is, you know, religious abuse and persecution of people, um, mm. you know, in, in in a material way, for example, in an economic way, or in a geographical way, or some other kind of thing, obviously you need to do something about that. But that's my point. I'm not really sure that we, we in Australia are having that. We we have a dominant religious group that. Feels very defensive about uh, criticism, and you know I accept your point, David, that there's an asymmetry about the way some of these things are uh, are interpreted. Um, But nonetheless, you know it's 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 like there's a political dimension to this push. It feels to me that is about speaking to you know sating a constituency's. Concerns, rather than necessarily there being anything material that's going to come out of it, and he seemed, Scott Morrison seemed to be saying that really by saying, "Look, you know, we can do certain things with the law," as you were saying, Jade, but a lot of this is about culture. Um, we have a couple of questions from uh, Owen Lawson and Marion Dickey, and they are on this subject. Owen uh, you know, goes to some of those questions we've already been talking about—the sort of tendency of uh, of Australian politics to look a bit. A bit American in lately, and Marion raises another point which I guess we've heard a fair bit of uh, in this debate, which is the criticism of the government for espousing Christian these sorts of Christian views very strongly, but perhaps pursuing policies which um, many people would say are, are you know particularly harsh, like in terms of the treatment of refugees. Is there a contradiction there, Jake?
0: I don't think there's a contradiction. I think there is a difference between being able to empathise with people who are going through different circumstances and also having policies in place which the Liberal government has been very strong on strong border protection. Um, I think they've tried to find a balance um, between those two. Some people might disagree but they're trying to do their best, I'd say.
1: Anyone else on that?
3: I think it's you know this is one of the really rough edges of of public policy, um, and you know I, I, I think the prime minister's been put through the ringer on this publicly. Uh, I know he was, you know, was quite a a what would you say um, disappointing slash dispiriting slash upsetting episode for him to be to have people referring him off to the 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 uh, to the Hague for crimes against humanity over his immigration policies where clearly he's guided by faith and you, you get this sort of juxtaposition of the good Samaritan in in the Gospels versus the harder edge of of national sovereignty. And, you know, I, I, there's been various position. there's been various politicians that have tried to rationalise it. The best one I've heard is someone saying it's almost everything you do in this space has some discomfort for somebody, but we've kind of got to the position of least hurt. You, you know, it, there's always going to be someone who's who doesn't enter or gets sent to a, a detention centre uh, who has to go through a process. But on the other hand, you don't have people coming and drowning at sea, you know. So the the idea that you would necessarily have to throw your borders open to welcome every Samaritan, doesn't reconcile with national sovereignty and defense and security and a whole range of other policies that go into that area. But it's, you know, there's a human cost in the middle of that that is very, very difficult.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been, as you say, uh, a rough end of of policy for a long time now. Mm. And and that is the the, I guess the frustration really here is that there are these people who are I've used this term before but are effectively caught in the hinge point of a, a change of policy they are you know in those detention centers or in those, held in those islands and um, you know in many cases there's there's no prospect of any change soon
2: no, but I think from, for some voters, to go back to the question, right? For some voters, like we understand the policy process towards it. But for some, if you're just a regular voters, it might sound like dis- disinjurious, right? Uh, sorry about that. But having Scott Morrison claim to have be this man of faith, carry him and going to ill sungs and then turning around and doing something that a lot of uh, Christian would think is kind of terrible. It's an un-Christian-like behavior, right? So it sounds a bit Problematic from a point, or it goes back to the politicians, or just all these people who just are there to gain votes, and that's about it. They don't have principles. So I think it kind of—it's a bit of a dangerous line to walk. It, out with is it, it yeah. a case
1: that a you know a person might who is a Christian might need to be consistent with those Christian views, but mm. a state? doesn't have to behave yeah, in that right.
2: way. Oh, to- totally, right? But I do have Christian friends and I do talk about these things and these things come up because, right, for a lot of Christians, it's really important to – the refugee issues is really important uh, for their Christian faith. And they have to reconcile this with what a Christian prime minister is doing and saying and that can be problematic. And I totally understand. like, And that can be a disconnect mm. for some people.
3: It's It's certainly the case that the Australian Christian lobby – has policies that differ from the government's. They they actually are pushing the government to to go in a different direction that, than the government has. Um, so it's not it's not like the the Christian you know Christian mm-hmm. people have a unified or homogenous yeah. view on this. No. That said, we've had what this debate has been fairly prominent since two thousand and one. So we've had seven election cycles now that have dealt with this in a fairly clear way, and the government. And the opposition, to be honest, have both accreted around a, a, a set of policies. They're in the middle. There's some that at the margins aren't aren't the same. But it, you know, it is it is a, a mash point, isn't it, mm-hmm. between people's personal faith and mm-hmm. and public policy. And there's a there's yeah. a difficult point where the tectonic plates meet there yeah. that someone has to manage. And and the guy that did it for a period of time was very successful at it. Is the current prime minister, mm-hmm. who, as you say. Attend salesong.
2: Yeah, and I think to go b- bring it back to larger uh, discourse about distrust towards politician. Right, there's a huge problem of uh, Australian citizens not trusting politician or hating them or disconnecting from politics. I mean, for some people, say seeing those two things together, like I'm a Christian, but I'll do unChristian things. As it's just c- reinforce a bit this. Mm. Uh, dis- I, I, yeah. yeah,
3: I, I disagree Which, with that. Okay. I, I don't think you could say. The PM is acting in an unchristian way, um, particularly when he, he's he's been put there to do a job. I, I suppose this comes to the difference if you really want to start talking about it. And it might sound like weasel words, and I, I mm-hmm. certainly don't want to. But I know a lot of, of a lot of politicians who are also Christians. Th- there's a distinction between being a Christian politician and being a politician who also is a, a Christian. Um,
1: and it's that latter model which has essentially been the Australian model.
3: Yeah, I think I think that's right. And there, there are points where, of course, you're guided by your your personal yeah. faith. You have to be. You, you, you conduct to other people. There's a piece in the paper this morning where, you know, um, Morrison has reached out to Malcolm. I, I, I can't see a lot of politicians doing that. I think that's sort of – there was a point where Tony Abbott reached out to Julia Gillard after – his character had been assassinated as a, as a misogynist i don't want to throw that one open. we could go all day on that but but there are there are points where you are aimed by your own personal convictions there's no doubt about that but there is a broader public policy need when you you are living in a in a democracy to respond to society's concerns and from broader security issues right you, you have to respond to that in a in a way that is effective the the PM, the current PM, was actually seen to be good enough in that job that he was then – he went – became social services minister and then treasurer. And part of, the, part of the, his appeal within the party room was he did such a great job on immigration policy, yeah. which is a portfolio that no one really wants, right, for all the, re- all the reasons we're talking about.
1: Yes. Well, look, just going back to your uh, point a minute ago, David, about uh, mash points and grinding tectonic plates, I mean, Australia, to some extent, feels a little bit bit like that, I guess, in the competition between the US and and China, which is, you know, this is sort of the issue issue of the century, really, uh, certainly for Australia, uh, the rise of China and what all that means. Um, Scott Morrison has just been invited to the White House for a state visit. Now, state visits are extremely rare. There's there's only been one granted by uh, Donald Trump's White House uh, since he's been there, and that was to Emmanuel Macron from uh, from France. So, it's quite a quite a significant gesture by the US that um that Morrison has been invited there for this uh, visit in September. Um how do you see it, Jade?
0: it's definitely um a very significant move um from Donald Trump um obviously their dinner that they had at the G20 in Japan um went quite well and now this invitation has been extended i think it's also important to note that um one of the uh, like most recent prime ministers um that from australia who has actually been invited uh to The White House um, to also have a state dinner last was John Howard um, back in 2006, I'm Mm. pretty sure – So this is quite momentous given that there's been quite a few Prime Ministers in between that period who also have been extended (laughs) (laughs) Um, that invitation. And a lot of people are saying that this is also a sign that Donald Trump is saying to Australia, you know, you've been really important, played a very significant role in keeping peace and stability within that Indo-Pacific region. So it will be interesting to see how this does play out. A few people have said that once Donald Trump has also invited some somebody uh, to the White House and given them quite a reception that it's not um, uncommon for him to then like throw them out to the wayside. So it will be interesting to see how these relationships go moving forward.
3: Donald Trump um, is a different cat. We all sort of know that. Uh, I think it's important from the perspective that it it underscores a a, uh, a heritage position where Australia has this great relationship through, through – um, defence ties and trade ties. And those ties have actually been tested over the last little while. One of the things the G20 took on was a a serious discussion about losing the exemption around trade for certain commodities. Steel and aluminium. Steel, aluminium. The the PM has negotiated a reprieve in that area, which is really important for Australia. And and I'm I'm told that there is – There's always this tension between the US and the administration over trade because they've gone back to quite a protectionist sticking tariffs on. Canada's been a a recipient of that. Um, Australia's managed to gain an exemption in that area. Um, It was Malcolm Turnbull that that actually gained that exemption. And that is because within the administration, our our defence and security ties overshadow, tend to overshadow the the trade office. And I I think that's been the case again. The... Add to the mix, though, in this case, um, China, and we've always had a really kind of non-partisan approach to trade. We've we've never had to really choose before, and I I suppose this will be the pressure point for Australia because we have historically been close to the US. We're going to remain close to the US. This enshrines the fact that we're close to the US, but the Chinese, I think, will see this as, you know, we, we... or don't use this state dinner to 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 look like you're getting too close to the, the the US. So there's this great tension that's never really been there before, which now exists more and more that Australia is going to have to manage. Now, part of where we went with our white paper recently was to include another growing power, India, in the in the Asia Pacific, to sort of balance out, if you will, some of the disputes that were going on with the US and 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 China. So. India is being brought in. Japan has its own view within APEC about about the dominance of China. So there's a lot of wheels and wheels going mm. here. But I suppose the cornerstone for Australia has always been the U.S. and appears at least in the short term until the next tweet. <laughs> um, to to still be, you know, yeah. the foundation point well, between a strong yeah, relationship. Yeah, no, they're
1: excellent points but they do – as your final point sort of highlights the weakness in it as well which is as we've just seen with, with the UK, I mean the special relationship turned out to be worth no more at least in the immediate term than – the president's feelings, his hurt feelings the, about, a, about a cable. There wouldn't be a single country that deals with the U.S. that hasn't had its ambassador sending back frank private I, I think that's out.
3: right. I mean, the, the president, you can see how he's been successful in business. He tends to negotiate one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So multilateral forums just –
1: He doesn't control them, so he doesn't mm-hmm. want them. No. Yeah. So
3: he, he will just car- carve off individual players, slap a, a tariff on. Everyone panics about it. They start making concessions. And the US is one, and so evil genius in it, isn't there? Well, his constituencies, you know, the the manufacturing, mining, retail, farming, that that's what they want him to do. So he's 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 actually appeasing constituencies there by, by doing this. So um, I think Australia's managed to get itself above the ruck and mall though a little bit um, because it's been this close partner, and and that looks like it's going to continue.
1: Well, thanks very much for a really uh, interesting discussion. We've ranged across a number of issues there and uh, it's always a pleasure to do so. And we'll be back uh, next week for another episode of Democracy Sausage. So thanks to Katrine Beauregard, David Gazard and Jade Gailberger, And that's signing off for this week. Look forward to your attention next time.